This Rarecast is made possible by Global Genes, a leading education and advocacy organization that serves and promotes the needs of patients and families touched by rare and genetic disease. Since 2009, Global Genes has been building awareness, developing patient-focused education and advocacy tools, and funding patient care programs and critical research. To learn more, go to globalgenes.org. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Unicure achieved a milestone when it won approval in Europe for Glybera the first gene therapy approved in the Western world, but it later pulled it from the market because it wasn't commercially viable. Now it's advancing a gene therapy for the rare genetic clotting disorder, hemophilia B, through development. We spoke to Steve Zelenkovsky, chief medical officer at Unicure, about what the company has learned from its experience with Glybera, what the data from its hemophilia B gene therapy has shown, and how it's expecting to alter that therapy to make a more effective version that may provide an even greater response. Steve, thanks for joining us. Uh, no, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. We're going to talk about Unicure, its experimental gene therapy for hemophilia B, and what it means to develop a gene therapy in what's turning out to be a competitive space. For people not familiar with Unicure, can you give a little overview of the company, which is the only one to have experienced marketing a, a gene therapy for a genetic disease in the Western world? No, thank you. No, Unicure is a uh, company that is uh, focused on gene therapies for rare diseases uh, to find uh, the answer to unmet needs to patients who have uh, these rare diseases that can be cured by a uh, gene therapy intervention. Uh, we're focusing in uh, areas uh, that are uh, liver-directed diseases with our lead program in hemophilia B, in CNS-directed diseases with our lead program in Huntington's disease, uh, as well as in cardiovascular diseases in partnership with Bristol-Myers Squibb. Uh, Unicure is headquartered in uh, Lexington, Massachusetts with a uh, state-of-the-art manufacturing facility for gene therapy. Uh, as well as a uh, research facility in Amsterdam. Uh, and we believe that the ability to be able to not only uh, be able to discover and uh, study these therapies, but be able to manufacture these therapies is a real uh, bonus in this field, uh, especially since, as you mentioned, we have uh, some experience uh, with uh, a previously marketed gene therapy in the Western world. Most companies if they're familiar with Unicure, are probably familiar with it because of Glybera, which you've pulled from the market because it wasn't commercially viable. But I'm wondering, what did Unicure learn from that experience? Well, I think that uh, there are a tremendous amount of learnings. Uh, in particular, uh, it's not only in the area of being able to understand uh, a market 
and a disease and availability of that disease. But really what it has uh, given us is the ability to be able to understand the value of, of and the difficulties that it takes to get through clinical development, discovery and clinical development, and get to market, get to marketing authorization, whether it be in the FDA or in this case, it was at the EMA, but in both the European and the U.S. Uh, regulatory pathways are somewhat more complex. The ability to be able to study these drugs, uh, these therapies uh, in clinical trials is somewhat more complex. And I think the learnings from that have bode well for how we're progressing with our hemophilia program. Well, let's talk about hemophilia B. For people not familiar with the condition, what is it? How rare is it? How does the disease progress? And what are the treatments that are available today? Hemophilia, there, there's uh, really a few flavors of hemophilia. The, the most common one is hemophilia A. Uh, that is a deficiency of factor eight, which is a uh, blood clotting factor made by the liver. Uh, and then hemophilia B, which is less common, um, but uh, still, uh, you know, a rare disease, but quite prevalent. Uh, and that is a deficiency of uh, clotting factor uh, nine which is a uh, clotting factor, a coagulation factor that's also made by the liver. Uh, the absence of uh, factor nine in these patients uh, will, not, uh, will not allow them to clot, and because of that, they can have significant severe bleeding disorders, not only bleeding traumatically like any of us have where we cut ourselves or injure ourselves, but these patients have a real severe problem of bleeding spontaneously they bleed without any trauma and the most common place where they bleed into is their joints, their muscles, and their tissues. Um, it occurs, hemophilia B occurs in approximately 25 to 30,000 individuals globally. Uh, so it is a, a rare disease, but it affects a significant amount of patients and it has a tremendous burden on patients' lives, both from an activity level, from a risk level, from an impact on their length of life uh, and their ability to do things uh, because of the fact that they're a greater risk to believe. Given that there are existing therapies available today, what makes hemophilia B an attractive target for gene therapy? So you're right. Uh, both hemophilia A and hemophilia B have existing replacement therapies. So these are therapies where the patients will um, inject themselves uh, through an intravenous with a uh, factor IX replacement. Uh, and that factor IX replacement may be short-acting, where it only lasts for a couple of days, or longer-acting, which, which can last a week to two weeks. Uh, but uh, these uh, replacement therapies are uh, certainly not optimal for getting restoring people back to normal lives. So uh, when you when a patient is on a replacement therapy, uh, they can either take it prophylactically, meaning that they're using it without a bleed to try to get their factor levels up to a level where they won't bleed. As with any drug, when you first take it, the levels get higher. And then when you're at the end of the dosing, the levels get lower. And when the levels get lower, the patients are, are clearly at an additional risk for bleed. Uh, in addition to that, you know, you can imagine that when a patient is giving themselves an intravenous medication all the time, they have risk of losing intravenous access, they have risk of infection, and there's tremendous cost to continue replacing 
patients with factors. So with hemophilia B, uh, factor replacements uh, for prophylaxis can run somewhere in the range of three hundred to six hundred thousand dollars a year just to to use that replacement. So the burden on the, the healthcare system, the burden on the patients, the fact that patients uh, really can't do any activities without replacing therapies, and then the risks around that. Uh, although uh, replacement therapy has really changed the lives of many hemophilia patients, there's still a tremendous unmet need. The beauty of hemophilia is the fact that it is a monogenic defect. So it has one gene that there's a defect in, and that gene can be altered. It, it occurs in the liver, uh, so it's a single organ, single gene, and it produces these factors uh, once you change the gene. And it's ideal for gene replacement therapy because the ability to be able to give a therapy where you actually just give one shot deal, you give one dose, you replace the gene that's defective uh, in the liver cells, and you start producing the factor, allows patients to then live a more normal life. They can come off of their factor replacement therapy. Uh, they can have a normal or a normalized activity level, and, and it really overcomes a lot of the burdens of having to replace on a regular basis. And, and how does Unicare's gene therapy actually work? So it actually, uh, the way Unicure's gene therapy works is that we actually use what's called a vector or, or a viral capsid. It's the outside coating of a virus that has been, that is not viable, is not living, and cannot re reproduce. So um, it's a safe uh, coating to the virus, but it's used almost like a capsule or a carrier. And the gene itself is placed inside that viral coding or the capsid um, or the vector, whatever you want to call that, and it's then given through an intravenous that goes to the liver. It actually then uh, gets taken up by the liver like a virus would and spreads through the liver by the nature of the type of uh, coding that the virus uh, that they're using. Plus, uh, there is um, a piece of the gene that makes it like to go to the liver called a promoter, uh, that gene then gets put into the liver cell and replaces the gene that's defective in the liver cell. And, and that replacement then you, then uses the patient's own liver to produce the factor that's missing. The journal Blood recently published data from a phase one, two study of your therapy. What did it show? So we actually uh, studied 10 patients with severe hemophilia B, and by severe hemophilia B, uh, these patients are have factor IX levels that are less than 2% of normal. So the, uh, many of these patients had no detectable factor IX level at baseline. And we studied uh, 10 patients, five at a low dose uh, of um, what we used in that gene therapy was uh, AMT60 which is um, our first generation of uh, therapy uh, where uh, we used uh, the, an AAB5 vector, which is the type of vector we use, which we believe is extremely safe, uh, and we're able to show that it is uh, in uh, these 10 patients, loaded with uh, factor nine wild type, which is the normal factor nine that's available within patients. 
Uh, the AMT60 showed at the lower dose of 5 times 10 to the 12th uh, that we were able to increase factor 9 levels to 4.4% uh, um, of uh, normal, of 4.4% uh, of normal, and we uh, were able to increase at the higher dose of 2 times 10 to the 13th factor levels up to 6.9% of normal. And what this did was it actually allowed most of the patients to come off of their factor replacement. Uh, it decreased at the lower dose uh, bleeding rates on a yearly basis up by about 53% uh, and uh, decreased factor nine use by 81%. And at the higher dose, we were able to decrease factor nine use by 73% and decrease bleeding by 70% and bring bleeding rates down below one per year at the higher dose down to 0 0.9. Uh, and as I said, this uh, therapy proved to be very safe. We were able to give it to all the patients in the study, uh, and they uh, tolerated it extremely well. Uh, as I said, AMT60 is our first generation. We now are uh, producing AMT61 uh, and are preparing to go into the clinic with that. We believe that um, because AMT61 uh, is extremely similar to 60 with one minor change. It will have the same safety and will have a much, much higher rate of factor 9 levels. And we're anticipating it will be uh, levels uh, that will be uh, somewhere around 6 to 7 volt higher at, at the dose we used. And how does AMT61 differ from 60? And is there some percentage goal you have for what a therapy would need to, to be to be? Well, it's interesting. When we started the study that's in blood uh, at that time, the, the goal was to really get factor nine levels to about 5% or greater, which is what was achieved with our higher dose. Um, and that was felt to result in reduction of factor nine replacement as well as bleeding. And it showed that you can do that with levels uh, that are that exceed five percent. Um, however, uh, the field has moved beyond that. One of the things that has been discovered is uh, there's a family in Italy that has uh, an a gene uh, a, a change in their gene of one base pair, a single change in their gene, which has resulted in significantly higher activity of their factor nine level. So their factor nine protein, which is produced by the liver, is exactly the same level as other patients, but the factor nine protein they produce produces a much higher clotting activity uh, per, per molar unit of protein. So it's a much more active protein. And that protein uh, it has a very minor, a one amino acid change from the rate from the protein that most of us produce, uh, and so AMT sixty one is actually uh, using that change that was noted in those patients to be included within the AV five capsid or vector. So we are actually taking that one amino acid change, which uh, results in a much higher level, about six to eight fold increase in activity per unit of protein and putting it within the same capsid. So the capsid is the thing that um, really
really has the, conveys the safety around this. And the uh, gene or the, the gene inside the capsid is what conveys the production of factor IX protein and ultimately the factor IX activity. So we anticipate that 61 will have the same profile, the same behavior as 60. However, we'll have a six to eight-fold higher level of activity. Uh, we've tested this in um, in monkeys, um, and we're able to show that that is actually the case, that it behaves ex- exactly the same as 60, except that the protein it produces has a much higher level of clotting activity. And we anticipate that we're going to have a range between 30 to 50% clotting activity with the same safety that we saw in the blood study. Unicure is, is not alone in developing a gene therapy for hemophilia B. What does it mean to be developing a gene therapy where others are also doing so? And, and how does that affect your development and marketing plans ultimately? Well, you know, you know, as a clinical trialist, I can tell you that um, it, it certainly makes doing clinical trials harder, but it makes you want to have a more uh, favorable profile uh, for the patients to be able to offer something uh, special. So uh, one of the issues with uh, using AAV vectors is that uh, a number of the AAV vectors um there is uh, people walking around with antibodies to those vectors. So those pre-existing antibodies uh, can bind to the vector and can make, can neutralize or uh, affect the effectiveness of the therapy. What they do is they activate um, the body's immune system to break down the, the vector that has the gene in it and then it doesn't do its job of going into the liver correctly and producing the right amount of factor. And um, certain vectors appear to do, certain AAV vectors appear to have higher rates of antibodies than others, and certain uh, vectors, uh, the antibodies may even behave a little bit differently. So uh, in the one that Unicure is using is the AV5 vector, and it turns out the AV5 vector is significantly different than all the other AV vectors. It appears to have developed differently than the others and is, is somewhat distinct. And the rate of antibodies that exist to AV5 are pre-existing in the normal population, and in particular in the hemophilia population, are significantly lower. Whereas with some of the other therapies, they have they have had rates of antibodies uh, of around 40%. Uh, we've seen in some of our studies, general population, uh, it is somewhere as low as two, as two percent of the population um, may have these pre-existing antibodies. The other thing that we saw was that in the in the study that was published in Blood, we tested patients for antibodies and saw that none of these have antibodies coming into the study by an initial test. We then found a more sensitive test and retested all the patient's blood and actually found out that three of them did have levels of antibodies to AV5, but but there was a very poor correlation with the presence of these antibodies and the loss of function, meaning that, uh, and in particular, our highest, the patient with the highest level of antibodies also had the highest function. So it appears 
that one of the advantages to Unicure's therapy is that we may not have to exclude patients who have these existing antibodies. So in other studies, uh, they have uh, tested patients for antibodies before they've enrolled them. And if the antibodies to the AV capsid exist, the patients were not included in the study, and that would exclude them from being treated out on the market as well should those therapies get approved. However, in Unicure's approach, because we have evidence that the, that the prevalence of these antibodies are lower and that we've treated patients with these antibodies and it appears that it doesn't interfere with the effect of the therapy, we are not actually excluding these patients from our clinical trials. And we believe that the advantage to the potential of AMT61 is that we will be able to offer patients for very high levels of factor activity or clotting activity uh, with the ability to maybe offer this to every single patient uh, because we won't be excluding uh, antibodies uh, at the baseline study. How important do you think it will be to be first to market? I think it will be extremely important. I mean, I think, um, I think you know, whenever you're... Uh, looking at these rare diseases and that you're studying these patients, you'd, you know, you'd like to be first to market um, to be able to offer your therapy to patients before anybody else uh, has it. However, I think that um, the uh, differentiation of this therapy being that it, it has the potential to be an all-comers therapy, whereas uh, some of the other therapies in the market may not be able to be available for uh, upwards of 40% of the patients uh, does give us an advantage, uh, although I think that we're in really good shape uh, because we will be starting our clinical trials in 2018, and we've already started manufacturing at commercial uh, scale. So uh, because of that, I think we've overcome the majority of the hurdles to get these studies started. And are we at a point where if there are multiple therapies on the market that we're going to see pricing competition? Do you think this changes the way that pricing for these therapies will be handled? Well, I couldn't even speculate on that. I, you know, I think it's a little early to know <laughs> what's going to happen to um, the, the therapies here and the prices of these therapies. Uh, I think it's somewhat of a complex issue and somewhat beyond my scope of my job as uh, chief medical officer. Uh, and my ability to develop these therapies. Um, the research around these or the clinical trials around these are, are somewhat cumbersome. As I said earlier, doing clinical trials and gene therapies uh, carry their own unique uh, perspective. But these are single doses, and they uh, will last hopefully a long time. I would say to you that right now we've reported out the blood study uh, went out to about a year, but Recently at the American Society of Hematology, um, we reported out two-year data, which looked as good as our one-year data, and we're hoping that you know by the time we uh, finish development and file for approval, we could have anywhere four to six years of data on our first cohort. And so you're offering patients a uh, therapy which could be you know potentially curative or near curative. 
which could last a very long time and provide them tremendous benefit. So uh, I don't know what that will do to the market having several of these, but I can tell you that uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens when we get closer. And what is the development path forward? Is the anticipation that you'll bring both AMT 60 and then 61 behind it or just replace 61 in, in the development cycle? Yeah, so uh, we met with both uh, FDA and EMA in um, in the fall of this year. Uh, we have a clear path forward um, with some uh, with our plan, and our plan is to bring 61 forward as the therapy uh, for patients uh, and initiate our uh, studies this year uh, in 61. Um, there really isn't the value to bringing 60 forward only because uh, 61 and 60 are, are so close to each other uh, and provide very similar profiles. 61 will provide, uh, as I said, a much more significant um, efficacy profile than, than 60 if it performs the way that we've seen it perform in the primates and the way that Padua has performed uh, in the Padua patients. Uh, it should give us a profile which has the, a similar, if not the same, safety profile with a much better efficacy profile. So the plan is really to bring 61 forward. Um, we're going to do a phase three study, uh, which we are in the process of ramping up right now and going through the usual startup activities. Uh, we anticipate by the middle of the year, uh, by the beginning of the third quarter, we will have uh, the phase uh, three study started. Uh, at the same time, or slightly before that, we will be doing three patients um, who will be dosing immediately as a dose confirmation study, just to confirm that our dose um, is the right, the dose that we had with 60, which appeared to give us the, the best efficacy and safety parameters, which is the 2 times 10 to the 13 gene copies per kilogram. Uh, will be the right dose with 61. So we're going to do three patients who will dose immediately and follow for a, a reasonable amount of time to confirm the 61 dose, and then we'll be including the, that dose in the phase three study. And if all goes well, when might you be able to file for approval? We anticipate that um, if we enroll patients, we will have a... Uh, the way the phase three study is designed is that there will be a six-month run-in, meaning that patients will stay on standard of care for six months uh, to collect information on them. And because this is a single irreversible dose, uh, we want to collect the pay the, each of the patient's data on them before we dose them. The patients then will be dosed and then will be followed for approximately a year um, for the primary endpoint, then five additional four years for safety. So, uh, standard with gene therapy is, is five years of safety, but uh, one year till efficacy and safety for filing. Um, we anticipate that um, if um, we have a six-month run-in, about a year of um, a year of um, recruitment and a year to follow up, it'll be about two and a half years until eighteen. So we have data uh, that we believe by law. Steve Zalukowski, Chief Medical Officer at Unicure. Steve, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me in today.
Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.